Our Old Testament reading is Psalm 130 and can be followed in the service sheet. Please join in with the words in bold. Out of the depths have I cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears consider well the voice of my supplication. If you, Lord, what is amiss? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you shall be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul is for him, in his word is my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the night watch for the morning, more than the night watch for the morning. With him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all their sins. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. Amen. Please stand for the Gospel. The Gospel reading can be found towards the back of the Church Bible, page 107. John, chapter 16, verses 16 to 24. Praise to you, O Christ, King of eternal glory. I am the light of the world, says the Lord, whoever follows me will have the light of life. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Then some of his disciples said one to another, What does he mean by saying to us, A little while you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me? And because I am going to the Father? They said, What does he mean by this, A little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Are you discussing among yourselves what I meant when I said, A little while, and you will no longer see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice You will have pain, but your pain will be turned into joy. 
When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. On that day you will ask nothing of me. Very truly, I tell you, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask! and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Please sit down. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we want to hear you this morning. And we want you to meet our needs. Amen. Amen. Last week we explored Psalm 13. This week we're exploring Psalm 130. Some might look for a symbolic relationship in the mathematical relationship between Psalm 13 and Psalm 130. Ten is one of the numbers of the Israelites regarded as perfect. There may be no symbolic relationship between the numbers 13 and 113, but our psalms are similar at key points. Both are laments. The psalmist is alienated. God's face is hidden. There is a significant but, the word of hope. We may also draw on verses 7 and 8 of last week's Gospel. God hears prayer and responds. Our psalmist is in distress. Dramatically, he begins by expressing his deep emotional distress. It's a cry of great need. He's in dire straits. He calls to the Lord out of the depths. Commentators tell us the Hebrew word depths he uses is often connected with water or the sea. The Israelites used them as metaphors for chaos. They weren't seafarers. Big water was mysterious and uncontrollable. From this hard place, the psalmist pleads with God to pay attention to his prayer and do something. Any of us might cry out so when deeply suffering despair or any of a myriad of troubles. Our great God is a moral God concerned with sin and forgiveness. Our psalmist believes his suffering is due to sin He knew God's record of forgiveness of people's persistent sin. No one could survive if God remembered sins. 
To keep a record is to remember. Here comes that significant but. That humanity continues to exist means that God does forgive sin. He does so for a reason that forgiven sinners might worship him. Our psalmist has grasped the fact that a God who hates sin can also forgive it. The New Testament tells us how. Although he's distressed, our psalmist expresses his deep and impatient hope that God will forgive him. This is communicated by repetition of the word wait. At first it's simply, I wait for the Lord. Then it's amplified. My soul waits. Forget the pale Greek idea that we've inherited of the soul as a spiritual entity entirely removed from the physical. The philosopher Plato and his mates couldn't cope with the messiness of the physical world. This is the full-bodied Hebrew soul, the body-mind-spiritual unity that is a whole person. I don't have a soul. I am a soul. If you're sending out an SOS, you don't want some disembodied spiritual entity saving. You want the whole you saving. Our psalmist's whole being waits. He then gives the example of the watchman waiting for the morning. Constantly alert, they wait for the rising sun. So is the psalmist, expecting God's forgiveness and relief for his suffering. To wait for the Lord means that we put our hope in his word. If he's to become real to us, it will be as he speaks to himself and makes himself known. That means wholehearted attention to our Bibles. There is the assurance that sooner or later there will be light, a new dawn. The psalmist's individual lament and expression of hope lead him to address his community, Israel. As he has done, so they should put their hope in God for forgiveness and relief of suffering. God will restore the relationship with Israel broken by their sin. After all, God's nature is constant love. Are you suffering the consequences of sin and seeking a restored relationship with God? This is the model prayer for you. We look to Jesus for confidence that God will forgive us and restore our fellowship with him. Jesus, who offered himself in our place, gives us certainty that God will hear our appeals for forgiveness. Just as the disciples, just as the psalmist had to wait, so did the disciples. 
Jesus says to his disciples at the Last Supper, a little while and you will see me no more. Again, a little while and you will see me. They won't see him because he's going to die. Then they will see him again after a short time because he will rise at the resurrection. Perhaps John was being ambiguous. The will not see me, will see me could apply to the time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming, the time we're in now. With Jesus apparently gone, the disciples would be bereft. The rest of the world would be happy that he was out of the way as they saw it. Then the disciples would have joy. But it wouldn't come until after Jesus' death and resurrection, his departure and return. One source of joy for the disciples and us would be answered prayer. With Christ's death and resurrection, relationship with the Father changes. Jesus' death and resurrection takes away the barrier of sin and creates an entirely new relationship. It means that we can call directly on the Father through Jesus. Doing so on the basis of Jesus' name means completely relying on his sacrifice to cover our unworthiness and a genuine commitment to ask for only those things that would bring God glory then we can be certain that Jesus and our Father will give us whatever we ask. You might say, that's all fine. But what about examples? The founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley, was an ordained Church of England minister. He'd done mission work in America. But all was not right. His was a religion of works, not faith. One May evening in 1738, in a London meeting house, listening to a reader from Luther's preface to Romans, everything changed. John Wesley knew truly Jesus as his saviour. What was the tipping point? That same afternoon, he'd been deeply moved hearing Psalm 130. He could identify with the psalmist. God's answer through the Apostle Paul's word was, righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Where do you stand this morning? Relying on your own good behaviour for a relationship with God? Or relying on Jesus' death and resurrection to take away the barrier of your own failings to create an entirely new and loving relationship between you and God. Textbooks for preachers say preachers should never talk about themselves. I'm taking Simon's briefing for this series as a license to break this rule. He says, give examples from our own lives. 
from my mid-teens when I was converted to my mid-twenties and perhaps beyond, I was cursed with the unwisdom of youth. I said and did things which hurt people and brought God no glory. For many years, the memory and shame of what I'd done frequently surfaced. I asked if this would go on forever. Then one communion service, for the first time, I fully heard and understood the words of Psalm 103, read and stressed. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. Light dawned. I no longer carry that burden. In the early 90s, I trod the edges of clinical depression due to work-related stress. I'd been overloaded for years. Things came to a head at the end of the first week of a two-week summer holiday. We'd been walking the Tissington and other trails. Daily, I'd been planning the how, where and what of my own death. On the Friday morning, Leslie asked me what I wanted on my sandwiches. I snapped back, don't ask me daft questions like that. I've got bigger things to think about. I realised I needed help. My doctor prescribed three months Prozac and then I'd get my managers to lessen the demand. God's provision was the Prozac and a sympathetic manager suffering similarly to myself who allowed me to step back. Recovery took 18 months. If anything, my sin was not in seeking help earlier. Don't be afraid to seek help. God provides. One of the few things that gave me any joy in that period was the Christian Doctrine module of a St. John's College Nottingham correspondence course I was doing. The textbook was George Carey's I Believe in Man. One doctrine he pursued was deification. The Orthodox are big on this. We're less so. At the end we will become one with God and share his reign and glory. What Adam grasped at at the fall is restored in Christ. That realisation of what's to come lifted me, as did the still small voice in my head saying, it's going to be all right. I learned later that that reassuring voice comes to many depressed Christians. Do you recall that I said I was planning the how, where and what of my death? The when was always missing. 
I think that was due to what I was learning about God's plans and that still, small voice. My constantly loving God brought me through. I realised later that thinking about my death was an intellectual displacement activity. It was easier than thinking about the impossible root problem. If you have real Christian faith this morning, it sits alongside failure, doubt, disappointment and the reality of your own human weakness and limitations, as does mine. Our constantly loving God is big enough to cope with all of that. In Christ, he has plans to perfect you, so at the end, you too will share his reign and glory. Whatever you need, call upon him in the name of Jesus, your Redeemer. Persist, he will answer. Dawn will come. Wait. That dawn may not happen in your lifetime, but he will give you the strength you need to bear what you have to. Meantime, are we idly waiting? No. We have the good news of salvation to share and God's creation to look after. So go to it. Let's pray. Lord, you know us and you love us despite our weakness and despite our failure. Lord, draw near and carry us all through as you do need to carry us, Lord. We ask it for your glory's sake. Amen.